welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, we are continuing in our series on how to follow Jesus, and our associate care pastor, Joshua Masters, is wrapping up our study of Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Visit brookwoodchurch.org or our Brookwood app if you'd like to find more resources on this message, or if you'd like to hear our past messages. We pray this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. Is Christ worthy? That song that we just sang, ask whether Jesus is worthy of all the blessings and honor and praise that we say that he deserves. And in a big way, that's sort of the question that we've been asking throughout this entire follow series. Who is Jesus? What kind of redeemer is he? We've been looking at a hymn or some people call it a poem, but a hymn, a song written about the character of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. And today we're going to finish that follow series. So you can go ahead and you can uh, turn or swipe in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. It's on page 947 if you're using the Bible that we have in the bookstore. Or if you're using an app, it's uh, under Philippians 2. So this passage describes the attitude of Christ and it invites us to follow his example. So in week one of the series, just as a little bit of recap as we close out this series, in week one of the series, JC helped us explore the divinity of Jesus Christ. We learned that the Redeemer must be fully God in order to bring salvation. Only God can forgive sin. And being fully God is the only way Christ's obedience and sacrifice could be perfect. It's the only way that the Messiah could be born without a sin nature and overcome death. Then in week two, we looked at how Jesus is also fully human. We looked at his humility in leaving his place of glory, giving up his divine privileges and becoming a human being. See, the Redeemer also had to be fully human in addition to being God so that the Redeemer could sympathize with our weakness, so that he could live the perfect life that we're not able to live, and so that he could rightfully suffer the punishment of human sin on our behalf. So our Brookwood Basic Beliefs question that we have this week at the end of the outline section of your handout is this. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? The answer is one who is truly human and truly God. But how does that all come together? What's the result of having a redeemer that's fully human and fully God? What does that look like? We ended last week by looking at verse 8. Verse 8. This is where we ended last week. Verse 8 says this. He, meaning Jesus, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. 
Christ's humility is what made it possible for my sins to be carried on his shoulders. Christ's humility is what made it possible for him to carry your sins to the cross. And that's important to remember as we move into the last sentence of this poem or this song in Philippians 2. Yes, so you heard me right. We're going to spend the entire morning on one sentence. One sentence. But hang on to your hat and your concordance because this is one heck of a sentence. It's a doozy. And it starts in verse 9. It goes like this. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's quite a sentence, isn't it? It's filled with questions and difficult theology and questions about the Trinity and end time implications. And yes, we're going to touch on all of that. We'll wade a little bit into some theology, but make sure that you don't miss that this passage is also filled with hope and assurance and purpose for our lives today. Let's break it down. The sentence starts in verse 9. Therefore, and we know therefore means it's referring to the thing before, right? So this is talking about what we just read in verse 8. Therefore, because of Christ's humility, because of Christ's obedience, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Now, the phrase elevated to the place of highest honor, that entire phrase is actually just one word in Greek. And it might better be translated as exalted. And that is your first fill-in. That's the answer to your first fill-in. Jesus is exalted by the Father. He is elevated to the highest place of honor and he's given the name above all other names. Now we're going to come back to that name in just a minute. But first, we need to have a little theology sidebar. You ready for your first theology sidebar this morning? Did you have coffee? As we study this elevation this exaltation of Christ, it's important for us to understand that Jesus had glory from the very beginning. Remember, Jesus is fully God. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, Colossians 1 teaches us that everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And that, in fact, he even now holds all of creation together. At the transfiguration in Luke 9, Peter, James, and John got even the tiniest glimpse of Jesus in his glorified state, and it drove them to their knees. Christ has always had glory. He was filled with glory before the creation of the earth but he gave up his divine privileges so that he could live a human life and make our restoration with God possible. So in one sense, as we study this elevation by the Father, he is restoring the glory Jesus already had and laid down when he became a man. 
Jesus even said, now, Father, bring me back into the glory we shared before the world began. So his glory from before is being restored. But there's also a sense in this passage that something else is going on. That this elevation elevates the role of the Son within the Trinity. The role of the Son is being lifted higher by the Father. So the essence of who Jesus is, is not changing. But the role that the Son has is being elevated and lifted up higher. And that new elevation is based on Christ's sacrifice and on Christ's humility, his ability and his willingness to overcome death through sacrifice. When we see Christ's worship, when we have glimpses of Christ being worshipped in heaven, he's not being worshipped for creation. He's not being worshipped for his act in creation. He's being worshipped for his humility and his sacrifice. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels all around the throne and of the living beings and of the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So in one sense, Jesus' pre-incarnate glory is being restored here. But in another sense, he's being even further elevated within the Trinity by the Father. We're in it deep now. Is that all clear as mud? Okay, well, Jesus used mud to give someone their sight back. So let's hope for that kind of effect. So there's one more important point and then, and then we're going to move on. Let's put our sentence back up on the board. It says, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The father gives Jesus the name above all other names. So we're keeping the sentence up there so that you can look at it. As you look at that sentence, what do you think that name is? Look, I, I know Perry's out of town, but he's going to watch the tape. And I'm going to tell him that you didn't answer. So looking at the passage, what name do you think it's referring to? Jesus? Yeah, in English, it does seem like it's referring to the name Jesus and the name Jesus is being exalted. But the name Jesus was actually a very common name. Lots of people had the name Jesus. In fact, it's the Greek version of my name. Jesus and I, we, we would have had the same pronunciation of our name, Yeshua. So this is bigger than his human name. Now there is some debate to be fair, but most scholars agree that this name that it's referring to is actually the word Lord in verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look at that phrase from a Jewish perspective. The name Christ 
or the title of Christ means Messiah, Mashiach, the promised Savior. And the word Lord is the Greek translation of the word used in the Hebrew scriptures to refer to the personal name of God, Yahweh. So if you read this sentence from a Jewish perspective, it reads, every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Savior, is Yahweh. His name and his title is the name of God, the name above all other names. So the question is, are we exalting Christ in our lives? Does our every thought, word, and deed reflect the fact that Christ is our God? Not just our Savior, but our God. Because we can only experience true freedom and a renewed life when we submit to Christ as our God. That leads us to our next fill-in. The exaltation of Christ results in the Son's lordship and creation's submission. The Son's Lordship and Creation's Submission. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word should in this sentence is a little bit misleading in the NLT. Because should bow is actually one word in Greek. And so in reality, every knee will bow on earth and in heaven and under the earth. That's all created beings, angels, humans, demons, even Satan himself. One day the glory of Christ will be so brilliant, it will force every person who's ever lived, every spiritual being ever created, onto their knees to confess the name of Jesus Christ and bring submission to his lordship. But make sure you get this because this is vital to understanding our purpose here on this planet in your everyday life. When that day happens, when every knee bows, when every tongue confesses, it will be too late. It'll be too late for restoration with God. Some will bow to his glory with honor and overwhelming gratitude, but so many will bow in despair and eternal regret. Let that sink in for a second. When Christ's true equality with God is revealed, everyone will submit to his glory. And the phrasing that's used in this song is not an accident. It is designed for the purpose of showing Christ's equality with God. Look at what God the Father said in Isaiah, through Isaiah. I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth and I will never go back on my word that every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. Even creation itself will bow to Christ's power. Now, our verse is talking about 
uh, created beings with an intellect. But Romans 8 tells us that all of creation groans like a woman in childbirth awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And one day, one day we will see creation restored under Christ's authority. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had just disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. And it is there in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for all eternity. 2 Samuel 7. Many of us, we at least try to go through our lives with gratitude for the fact that Jesus is our Savior. Gratitude for his saving power. But do we really live our day-to-day lives our moment-by-moment lives with the understanding that every knee will bow to him one day and that all of creation will crumble and be renewed at his word. Do we live our lives like that's true? See, we embrace Christ as our savior, but I'm afraid that we've lost our fear of the Lord. I'm afraid that we've lost our reverence for his majesty. The power and the authority of Christ's divinity is unfathomable. Yet he also remains fully human for all eternity. He will sit on that throne in Jerusalem with an actual body. And one day, he will raise us up to the same kind of glorified body that he has. Look at what Philippians chapter three says. He will take our weak mortal bodies and he will change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So see, even in his exaltation, even as he is lifted up, Christ shows the same humility and servanthood that he showed as a man. Look at the, the very last phrase in our passage. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. So your next fill in the exaltation of Christ results in the Father's glory. The Father's glory. See, everything Jesus has done from the time of creation, from before creation, everything that he did in his 33 years on earth, everything that he will do as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, everything he does is designed with the purpose of bringing glory to the Father. And we looked at a small piece of this verse earlier, but as the crucifixion approached, this is what Jesus prayed. Father, The hour has come. Glorify your son. Why? So he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. 
I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me back into the glory we shared before the world began. See, we have a tendency to make it about us, but the ultimate purpose in the plan of redemption was to bring the Father glory. So because of that, the glory that Christ is receiving in this exaltation also glorifies the Father because it is a fulfillment of the Father's will. And as Spurgeon points out, with all the authority given to Christ, note that he did not crown himself. Instead, he waited for the Father to elevate him. The greatest desire of the Son is to bring glory to the Father. Is that your greatest desire? Is your greatest desire to bring glory to the Father? We talk a lot about being transformed to be like Christ. We talk a lot about how we can have a relationship with God because of Christ. But that relationship should be marked by a desire to bring glory to the Father in everything that we do. Not out of obligation, but out of love and an understanding of who the Father is. Is everything that we say and do intentional in bringing glory to God? Is every prayer that we pray intentional with a desire to reveal his will over our own? See, we will never find contentment in seeking our own glory. But submitting to a life that glorifies the Father will bring eternal contentment. And I don't just mean after you die. I mean here on earth, right now, it can bring you contentment. Because we're chasing after something we can't catch. That's what it looks like to live like Jesus. Especially as we acknowledge how his glory and his exaltation lifts us out of the consequences of our sin. The exaltation of Christ also results in our assurance. Our assurance. As we just learned, the first and most important thing Christ does with his exalted glory is that he gives it back to the Father. But God's love and his grace is so great that he does something else with it too. Jesus prayed this. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about us. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Can you even comprehend what that means? Every knee will bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ and make no mistake he would be well within his right to keep every creature kneeling before him in fear. 
but instead he shares his exalted state. He shares his glory and he brings us into his family. He makes us his own. He uses his place of authority to lift up those who look to his work on the cross for their salvation, knowing that they're not capable of saving themselves. That's what he does with his exalted glory. So if you belong to Christ, you do not need to question your salvation because there is no higher authority than the one who gave it to you. Look at John 10. It says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my father's hand. And the father and I are one. You don't need to question your salvation because there is no one more powerful than the one who gave it to you. We have assurance in our salvation and Christ will exalt those who belong to him before the father. But sharing in Christ's glory should lead us to have the same attitude that Christ had. The same attitude that he continues to have. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves just as Jesus did. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what the entire passage in Philippians surrounding this poem or this hymn, that's what that whole passage is about. In fact, the lead into the poem, we started this series in verse six, but the lead into this poem is verse five. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. And then it goes on to describe his attitude. Do we have that attitude of Christ? Do we understand the role of Christ's divinity in our lives? Do we exist to bring glory to the Father? Do we have the humanity and the servanthood of Jesus? If Christ lives in us, his character should be reflected in our lives. Because if you, if you truly grasp the weight of Christ's sacrifice as a human being and the depth of his glory as God. You can't help but be changed. And I think to get that full context, we should read the whole poem, the whole hymn, all together, look at it all together. And just like JC said a couple weeks ago, I want to encourage you, if you're going to memorize a piece of scripture, memorize this piece of scripture. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. For though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born a human being. And when he did appear in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. And therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor 
And he gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do the truths in this passage affect your life? Men, what are you doing to make sure that these truths are reflected in the lives of your family? Moms and dads, what are you doing to make sure the truth of this passage is reflected in the lives of your children? What are you doing to take steps to make sure that this is reflected in your own personal life? How does Christ sacrifice? And I'm not just talking about the cross. I'm talking about how he surrendered everything to become fully human for eternity. How does that affect your life? How does his authority over all creation, knowing that he's fully God, how does that affect your life? Knowing that you have assurance in your salvation, that no one can snatch you away from him. How does that affect your life? And how does the knowledge that when exposed to the glory of Christ, every creature created, every created being will be driven to their knees in worship and that many will kneel with eternal regret about to be eternally separated from his glory. We need to evaluate our lives in the light of these truths over and over and over again. We need to evaluate our priorities and what we do in our life. So to close out this series, let's look at four questions that we can ask God to speak into our lives about. Because to be honest, I don't think we can accurately answer these questions for ourselves. I think these are questions that we need to pose and then ask God to reveal the truth about ourselves to us. And these four questions are actually included in your discussion guide in the back part of your handouts under question nine, if you want to refer to them later or use them in your small group. Questions that we need to ask God to speak to us about. And question number one is this, how does it affect my interactions with other people? How does it affect my interactions with other people, the truth of this passage? Do we respond to people with love and grace and humility and accountability for one another? How do we relate to other believers in the church? And maybe more importantly, is there an urgency in our heart to build relationships with non-believers? Because this passage should create an urgency in us. See, we have a tendency to think about the grace of Jesus Christ, but we must never forget that the justice of Christ is still coming. I want to show you something absolutely incredible. Just take a couple minutes to show you something completely incredible in Scripture. When Jesus stood in the temple and he read from the book of Isaiah, he revealed something about himself and he revealed something about his plan that we often miss. So Jesus is in the temple. He receives the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read. The spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's awesome. Jesus was fulfilling his purpose to come and set the captives free. He was telling them that he was the Messiah and that he had finally come. The Messiah was here to fulfill this prophecy and set the captives free. But do you know what's truly incredible about the passage Jesus read? He stopped in the middle of a sentence. Jesus didn't finish the sentence he was reading. Because the passage that he was reading in Isaiah, the sentence continues like this. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped in the middle of a sentence because he's delayed his judgment. He's delayed his judgment so that we might have a chance to turn to him. And we might have the opportunity when we do to introduce him to other people who don't know his saving grace. He tarries from grace and grace alone. See, we, we think that we have plenty of time, but we don't. Look, the entire church age, the entire age of the church lives inside a comma in the middle of a sentence. And we don't know when he'll finish the sentence. But we do know that when he does, it will be too late. It will be too late. The vengeance of God against the sins of this world are postponed by grace, but they're only delayed. They're not canceled. So we have to be intentional in our relationships. We have to build intentional relationships with people in light of what this truth is teaching us. We don't have time. The second question that we should ask God to reveal in us is this. How do these truths affect my giving and my generosity? And yes, I'm talking about both giving to the church for ministry and your generosity with other people. Understanding that we don't know how much time is left and knowing what is at stake for those who don't know Jesus Christ when that day comes. How does that affect the way that we look at our money? Second Corinthians says this. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So you have freedom in Christ. You have freedom. 
And I'm not here to make anyone feel pressured or to give you a sales pitch. But don't miss the responsibility of this verse within its freedom. Because this passage assumes two very important things about the body of Christ. First, it assumes that everyone, everyone is giving something. And I got to be honest, I don't think that's happening in a single church in America. And second, it assumes that they've gone through the process of actually searching their heart for what they're really supposed to give. Have you done that? Have you really spent time seeking what God wants you to give? What his expectation is of you? Or are we just remaining where we're comfortable? It comes down to this question. Does his lordship matter in our finances? Question number three. How does it affect my priorities? my schedules, my activities, my service. If we had an app, we all love our smartphone apps. If we had an app that tracked how much time we spend focused on us, even the good things that we do, versus how much time we spend glorifying God, what would your tracker say? And what if we had to turn in that tracker to God at the end of the age? How important would the things that we fill our schedule with now seem then? But here's the thing, that tracker exists. Because 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we will all give an account for what we did within the body of Christ. When we stand... before the glory of the Messiah when we stand in front of that resurrected body that was killed for us and he lays out every action we've ever taken, every dollar we've ever spent, when he lays that out in front of us before his glory, what will we feel then? Finally, our last question, how do these truths affect my worship? And I'll be honest, this is probably the most important one because if you get your worship right, everything else is going to fall in line. Above all, this passage should give us hope and assurance and joy. Do we worship with his sacrifice and his majesty in mind? Is that in our hearts as we worship? Do we worship throughout the week? Do we prepare ourselves for worship on Sunday morning? And of course, I know worship goes beyond singing. It's not just about singing. So do you enter into a place of worship during the message on Sunday? Do you enter into a place of worship while you're working or while you're driving or while you're sitting in the parking lot? How can we read this passage and not have us change us when we see the goodness of God? We started this morning by asking the question, is he worthy? Knowing what he has laid down for us, is he worth laying down everything in our lives to worship him? Let's try. Just, 
just for a couple minutes, let's try together. Let's try to put aside everything that we worry about and everything on our task list and let's try to truly worship. As our team leads us, please don't leave. Don't pick up your stuff or organize your stuff. Stop. Worship. Don't be afraid to sing out, even if you can't sing. Close your eyes, raise your hands, call out to Christ if that's what the Holy Spirit moves you to do. This moment is about you and it's about God and your relationship with him. There are no sermons, there are no songs, there are no words that can convey the glory of Jesus Christ. So in this moment, ask God to reveal just a, a glimpse of his glory to you. And let's exalt Jesus Christ and truly worship together. Remain standing just for a moment. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We can sing a new song because he sits on heaven's mercy seat. We have victory in Jesus Christ because he's worthy. Please, please don't leave this room without embracing the glory of the sacrifice that he made for you. Maybe, maybe you're a believer and God is calling you to a greater purpose, to a deeper relationship with him. Maybe, maybe you've realized today that you never have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You've never surrendered to him, but you want him to claim you as his own. on that day when everyone kneels. Our care volunteers are gonna be down front. They're gonna be in the care connection room. They want to pray with you. They want to encourage you. They want to build you up. They will pray over you. Maybe you're struggling. In those moments of struggle, it can seem hopeless. It can seem like there's no pathway out. It can feel like we're buried. But Jesus Christ is worthy and he is glorious. And if you, if you stop resisting him, he will lift you up. Don't be afraid to come forward. Don't be afraid to call out his name because he is worthy. Father God, we cannot understand your glory. We can't understand how a God so powerful and so pure would give up so much for those of us who turned against you. 
Give us a sense of your glory in a way that we can't resist what you want to do in our lives. Because you are holy. You are worthy of praise. And you are glorious. We ask this in the name of Christ, who is our redeemer and our hope. Amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways that you can connect with other Christians, or if you just have questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326. You can also find our past messages on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.